Podcast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. You know, it's interesting, the last two shows we've had, David, first we had Dr. Stephen Greer, and I wonder, in light of the way he behaves, how did this guy become a medical doctor? Uh, Maybe I'm speaking too much. I wouldn't want to be in an emergency room with this guy because, you know, he might try to inflict alien babies on his patients. I don't know. That's a very disturbing visual, I must say. Yes. We made up for it with our last show that had... Stanton Friedman being completely rational. In fact, some of our listeners said that some of the stuff that came out of him during that episode is stuff they never heard from him, that he acquiesced to the possibility of interdimensional sourcing for some of these creatures was quite the coup on our part, I think. And some of our listeners think so as well. Yes, I think definitely here's one where Stanton was relaxed. He knew that he was among friends. I mean, we're not enemies of his. I've known Stan for <laughs> longer than I've known you, David. A lot of, you know, several well, hundred years. In like, you know, two months. Right. I've so known you two or three months, so I've known Stan for maybe 25 years. So we go back. We've disagreed about things, notably sometimes Roswell, things like that. But I always enjoy talking to him. I think I did say, though, that because of the fact that I edited out all his excess coughs yeah. in the show. Okay. I edited that out, and as a result, he owes me a dinner next time he's out west. All right. Okay. But no, I seriously speaking, it was a very enjoyable session. Stan was relaxed. You know, he was and not putting on an act for an audience. He was simply telling you what he thinks, why he thinks that. And it was just a very, very pleasant session. I think one of the best interviews Stanton Friedman has given anywhere. It's not because this is the power cast. It's because of the fact that he has a lot of good things to say. I don't think that other shows necessarily get that information. They just get the latest Roswell spiel or they get the latest MJ-12 spiel. And here they got something a lot better. Well, and this leads into, of course, our guest this week, who, for my money, is one of the most important characters covering the UFO field because he provides an incredibly important link between the world of Spanish-speaking people and the English world. And, of course, we're referring to Scott Corrales, who uh, we've had on the show before, and for my money, who I'd like to make a regular guest, for, for, for no other reason than he is intelligent, he's well-spoken, but he, he is constantly and vigilantly covering the Latin American UFO situation, which I'm very deeply interested in. I think we should all be interested in it, especially given that for so many years, pretty much ever since UFO sightings began, South America has had an incredibly large number of incidents associated with it. And these tend to be ongoing incidents. In fact, today we'll talk with Scott about just even what's happened since we had him on the show last year, including what appears to be an ongoing UFO flap in Argentina. Interesting stuff. Now, that's something we could start with. I'll tell you that. All right. And yes, because so you've mentioned this a couple of times in previous episodes. There's been an ongoing UFO flap in Argentina. Scott, welcome back yeah. to the PowerCast I'm so sorry we haven't had you on earlier. I mean, we've had some looms on in recent months, and we needed somebody sane. And certainly Stan was 
a very sane guest, very responsible guest, scientific, and now we have you. So regale us with your wisdom. What's happening in Argentina? Well, first of all, let me tell you it's a pleasure to be back on the Paracast. And uh, certainly I hope your listeners are as fascinated by the developments in South America as the rest of us. The year 2008 began with a nearly nonstop wave of reports coming from different parts of Argentina. Many of these cases happened to be the so-called chance or fortuitous UFOs, also called invisible UFOs, that appear to be detectable only to the eye of the camera. Whoa, invisible UFOs. Now, sometimes there are the reverse, where people see them, but they can't be photographed, like vampires almost. But exactly. exactly. Well, well, now, this is the opposite case, and this has been a source of great controversy. Usually, you have individuals taking a picture of a landscape, of a private party, of, a, let's say, some kind of air show, where you can clearly see the sky, and no object appeared to be present at the moment, but upon downloading the images on the digital cameras, this is only occurring with digital cameras, these fascinating images are now turning up, Uh, not just in Argentina, mind you. These are random photographers in different parts of South America and in Mexico, all of them telling us the very same thing. They aim their camera to take a photo of a subject, and upon subsequent downloading or whatever process, they do eventually see this object. Now, could these be motes of dust? Could these be cam lens flares or any kind of error? Certainly. But we also have some very, very good photo analysts who've proven that there was something there. Something does appear to be in the photo that has been done. Well, while it could be something, Scott, does that necessarily mean that that something is a large structured object? I mean, we've seen a number of photos uh, where you have these blurred things streaking across the sky. And I'm not talking specifically about photos from South America. There have been a number from around the world where you start to do some basic image analysis, and what you come back with is that in many cases, a lot of these things are literally birds. They're flying real fast. Well, on many occasions, there are birds. Uh, But one of the Argentinian UFO analysts set aside a considerable amount of, I'm guessing, bandwidth to pick objects that are commonly mistaken for UFOs. In many cases, you have the orange glow of the wake of certain jet airliners. Right. Uh, that seemed to emerge quite a bit. He has set up this, this uh, first of all, his name is Luis Burgos of the Argentine Federation of Ufology. Um, mm-hmm. He has set out all these possible, let's say, false positives on his website showing everyone Many times you'll see this object, well, that's the wake of an airplane, or if it's a bird, it'll look something like this. If it's a dust mote, you'll imagine this perfect orb that's luminescent as the flash catches it. Right, sure. So there is the awareness that these things do happen, that uh, perfectly well, unusual but perfectly explainable objects are collected on photographs. And I wanted to add my own experience. I'm a photographer. I take uh, photos of anything and everything that moves. I have yet to come up with anything um, unidentified when I download it. Mm-hmm. Many years ago, I had to take a photo of a, uh, I think it was a cloud or a mountain, through a windshield. And wouldn't you know it, a small object 
resembling one of the famous 1960s uh, UFOs appeared sideways. And it reminded me, it was, it was one of those uh, UFOs that used to be featured in the old Saga UFO report back in the 70s. You know, I wrote and, an article for that, a couple of articles for Saga UFO Report. Oh, that was a terrific magazine, let me tell you. Well, you know, and, however, however, I wrote an article there, and I learned very recently that one of the things I wrote about was not true. Oh. Okay. And it was part of a report probably of famous figures encountering UFOs. And then there's that infamous story of William Shatner in the desert. Right. Right. I do and remember that. finally, in releasing his autobiography very recently, he admitted it never happened. Well, so much for Captain Kirk. <laughs> I know that Mr. Spock would have said this wasn't very logical, but, you know. But nonetheless fascinating. <laughs> but, but, but in any event, um, the, um, this object was pointed out to me by the photo technician, saying, hey, you finally caught a UFO. On film, it was in fact just you know some kind of uh, bird dropping or, or the other. So so we all have to be aware that yes, these things do happen. Let's not get too happy when they occur. But aside from the invisible or random, fortuitous uh, chance UFOs, you also have the objects that have been reported by uh, by witnesses in both urban settings and rural settings. Now, why Argentina? As you mentioned in the intro, Latin America has always been this um, destination of prime importance for uh, strange phenomena. Let's not call them UFOs or anything. Argentina, since the waves of the 1960s, has acted as a charm for this vast range of phenomena, ranging from the actual sightings of craft to sightings of entities on the ground to paranormal sightings to simply high strangeness events as occur in the area of Santa Rosa, which is in the Pampas. Do we have a good answer as to why, uh, what's the, what this attraction is all about? It used to be said the loneliness. This, these are very, very deserted areas in which, let's say, if you want to think about bona fide alien visitors, they could certainly conduct any kind of operation they wished and not be spotted. Very many American tourists go down to Argentina and find out that you can't get there from here. That may sound funny, but when you're stuck in a small town on Friday with no bus until Monday, you realize how alone you are in the world. And certainly this is the case with parts of the country, especially Patagonia, anywhere away from that huge, wonderful city that is Buenos Aires. Now, we're in Argentina, we're faced with a considerable number of researchers and organizations, very educated people, some of them with experiences ranging back to those early days, the 1962 wave, the 66 wave, the 68 wave, many of them of military background. The Argentinian military was also visibly involved in uh, looking at the phenomenon from various perspectives, both their Navy and their Air Force. So you have this... Um, this brain trust, shall we say, uh, and they're very, very combative. Uh, they tend to see it from different perspectives, pro and con, extraterrestrial, interdimensional. And you also have that extra facet we don't get here stateside, but we haven't since the age of the contactees, which is the very widespread belief in intraterrestrial UFOs. The fact that we have in civilizations underground in Argentina that actually are the wellspring 
of all these uh, manifestations. Why do we have that kind of belief there, and why do people hear when they hear about sightings in South America? I don't know whether it's some kind of prejudice involved, and it might you know, be. Why do they disbelieve? Well, you know, this this is something that I think Trump has been trying to fight for the past uh, 12 to 15 years I've been involved in the field. Anywhere south of the border, be it Mexico or uh, Panama, Argentina, it doesn't matter, is the land where people have arms growing out of uh, their, their armpits, so to speak. It's like the old terror incognita on the old European maps. Anything is possible down there, and therefore it's a, the wellspring of traveler's tales. So most people think, look, if it's not in English, if I can't read it, if my next-door neighbor can't read it, if it didn't happen in Roswell, if it didn't happen somewhere else, it's yeah. not real. Right. And it's simply a very provincial, a very negative, I, I don't want to say bigoted, that's a very, very strong word, especially nowadays, but it's simply a rejection of what's not known, of what lies beyond the river, beyond the border, or on the other side of the mountains. And we, clearly, we're having this, with all the Latin American cases, you simply find, and I think this observation was made by, by Jacques Vallée in his own works, that the cases are either more intense, the palette with which the colors of UFO and paranormal phenomena are painted in South America are much more vivid. And that's, you know, a bit of poetic turn of phrase there. But uh, you do get to see that. You do get to see that the encounters are much more graphic. The sightings tend to be much more splendid. The witnesses themselves seem to be very colorful, and I mean that in a positive way. We had a case two years ago of an entire um, bus with, I'm guessing, 28 passengers that simply saw this UFO in the middle of the Pampa late at night. Photos were taken, albeit the same blurry photos that mm. are often chastised yeah. by UFO experts. And everyone saw it. Affidavits were signed. And yet, what, what does it take us? No, we've never had a Greyhound bus stopping in the middle of the, of the night to see this kind of manifestation. Or maybe it, we it, have the people who want to talk about it. Uh, that's very possible. Let me tell you about my own experience. I've never seen a UFO, and I always make that clear. I was flying near the Christmas holidays between Philadelphia and San Juan, Puerto Rico. And our flight, US Air, was simply detoured to Miami, Florida because of a NASA rocket launch that was going on. The missile or whatever rocket it was was clearly visible from the port side of the aircraft wow um it was an incredible brilliant pink trail of uh, vapor and you could see the i guess the whatever the payload was no one spoke about it the airline did not apologize we were delayed by a couple of hours by having to go to, to miami and then on to puerto rico uh, these things happen all the time. We do have cases coming out of Mexico City right now where pilots, uh, aircraft mechanics, and certainly passengers are seeing these UFOs maneuvering, emerging from clouds, shadowing the aircraft uh, in the vicinity of Mexico City International. We have reports from the flight mechanics, sometimes the pilots, but never the passengers as hmm. the people just, just happy to get to the destination. Uh, they were traveling coach anyway. There was no service. Let's just get this flight over with. Uh, hey, let's get this there. over with. In a world where UFO 
conventions are completely, utterly boring. Come something new from a whole bunch of people who are trying to do something new. The Culture of Contact 2008 UFO Festival. It is reality. Cyrus David Bassett. David Biedney. Dr. William J. Byrne. David Hatcher Childress. Patricia Corbett. Richard Dolan. Bud Hopkins. Ellen Brodnow. Michael Manuel. Melissa Reed. Jeff Ritzman. Giorgio Sukalos. <laughs> Jeremy Fainey. And Farrier Duzo. Special President. By Combustion Motor Corporation. Masahiro Kata. And the world premiere of the silent but deadly truth solution of truth. For more information and to order tickets, please visit www.cultureofcontact.com. <laughs> Once again, that's www.cultureofcontact.com. Card subject to change. You could be screwed financially. Probably not, though. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on hand, and he has a special offer for listeners of the Paracast. We are all. Offering six issues for the price of five. Normally, when you send me a subscription for $19.95, a new subscription, you get five issues. It's our introductory offer. But just for our friends on the Paracast and friends of Gene and Dave, we're going to throw in an extra issue and give you six issues for the price of five. That's six issues for $19.99 just for you. How do we take advantage of this offer? There are three ways to take advantage of it. One is, if you're online, go to www.ufomag.com. Hit subscribe when you come to the PayPal page. Just put in under item, Paracast Offer, 1995, and I will know that you get six issues for the price of five, or you could send your check or money order to UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California. That's Ray spelled R-E-Y, California, 90295. Put down your name and your address, and on your name and address label, put down Paracast offer. You can also put it on your check for 1995 in your money order. I will know exactly what it means because I'm psychic, and I will credit you with six issues instead of five for that 1995. Or you can call me at 1-888-UFO. 6242, and I will take your name and address and your credit card and send you six issues for the price of five, and that's how you do it. You're in the Paracast with James Sanger and David Bianchi. You never know what's going to happen next. We're talking to Scott Corellis on the Paracast, and we're having a very, very pleasant time doing it because we're getting caught up to date with Latin American UFO sightings. And it's so unfortunate that we have these very descriptive, very important reports that are just not being presented properly. And they should be. I mean, absolutely. you just brought up, Scott, uh, that there's yet more stuff coming out of Mexico City. Now, I've mentioned this on the show before. It would appear that Almost since 1991, there has been an unusual amount of activity in Mexico City, a lot of mass sightings. There's been a tremendous amount of video evidence gathered. It's just been almost unprecedented, and what you're telling us is that this is continuing 
even into now. It's 2008, and this is still happening, right? That's correct. Up to just a couple of days ago was the most recent sighting in Mexico City. The 90s, I think, were characterized with the first... Well, let me just go back, a little bit of background. Sure. If you wanted to start uh, to find a start date for the activities in Mexico, you'd have to go back to the 16th century, when the Aztecs were writing up their chronicles of strange objects in the sky as part of that huge wave of paranormal phenomena that preceded the arrival of the Europeans, which, of course, you could just say, well, this is part of their myth or legend or whatever, but some of the cases are describing what we have come to know as UFOs. So the country has had nearly nonstop activity. that pops up several times, I'm guessing, uh, every century. You could go back to the 19th century and find very, very interesting reports of, let's say, giant mysterious birds you can find reports of ufos strange lights in the sky fireballs and all kept in almanaques which are these sometimes they're not quite like the farmer's almanac but they're simply uh, compilations of information i guess useful to people for that for that time and we don't have them anymore but uh, they're available at mexican libraries people do consult them this information is there as of 1947, once after the Arnold sighting, stateside, you start getting the Mexican cases. Largely in the 50s, you have a very famous Santiago, Salvador Villanueva case, I'm sorry. Uh, he was a contactee, very much in the Adamski mode. Then in the 60s, you start getting the regular nonstop UFO sightings. And of course, you had a lull in the 80s, and then it picked up where you mentioned, 1991, with a new wave of sightings. And a significant wave. We're talking about, in some cases, dozens of ships being seen together or, or some kind of objects. We're talking about, um, from what I gather, massive amounts of video and image evidence gathered. Now, just for a moment, I, I, I want to come back to this current contemporary situation, but let's go back to the Aztecs for a moment. What kind of things were they reporting, Scott? I don't think a lot of people know about this. Well, there's a compilation of uh, codexes that's collectively known as La Visión de los Vencidos, Perceptions of the Vanquished. And it's supposed to be the information that the portents that the Aztecs were compiling as to the change of, uh, of reality for them, this paradigm shift they were going to undergo uh, with the arrival of the Europeans. Ten years before Cortes even dreamed of heading to Mexico, there were already reports of a pillar of fire that burned for many days and was never explained. Well, let me just paraphrase. The Emperor Moctezuma did have a sort of um, National College of, of Sciences. Uh, he had his sorcerers who sort of told him, <laughs> tried to explain phenomena uh -huh. to, to the Aztec court. And they said, well, this pillar of, of flame, we have no idea what it is, but it does merit further study if you give us funds. I just naturally... But certainly, records were kept. That was the first of the portents. Mm -hmm. The next of the portents were objects, uh, shield-like objects that appeared to buzz the markets mm. in Tenochtitlan, which was the original name of Mexico City. Then you had the appearance of the so-called um, La Llorona, the goddess Xiotehuatl, uh, I believe it's in Nahuatl, she who cries in darkness. And this very clearly paranormal manifestation would haunt the streets of old Tenochtitlan, uh, only for this time period saying the very same words, Oh, my children, where shall I hide thee? 
huh. perhaps making reference to what was going, what was coming down the pike. Um, so very, very interesting stuff. Now, as far as contemporary times, what what a lot of people don't realize about Mexico City in in current times is that this is a one of the most populous cities, perhaps in the world. It has a, a vast population. If you look at the city from Google Earth, which is one of my favorite software toys, to hover above Mexico City and to realize how vast it is. I don't think there's a city... I think maybe the closest thing would be the sprawl of Los Angeles, but really, I think in terms of scale, nothing really compares to Mexico City. What does it have, like 14 million people? What is the, the, the occupancy, do you know? I think it's 20 million the last time it's I was 20 million. Oh, the last census. Which uh, is great. It's huge, a huge sprawl. And of course, very much like, like, like Los Angeles, it's pinned in by mountains. So, so you have the same kind of smog, same kind right. of weather conditions. Of course, Mexico could continue spreading southward in uh, its valley, in the Anahuac Valley, until it comes up to the volcanoes. And then it would have, you know, there's nowhere else to go. Certainly, I'm sure some of the ritzier suburbs now extend that far. But eventually, the rest of the city will just keep moving in that direction. And you will have occupied that gigantic valley from north to south. It, as I said, it's, it is one of the world's largest urban concentrations. And entire books have now been written about the UFOs appearing over its airport area. Some of the cases are, as you can imagine, mind-blowing. Air traffic controllers having to hold flights because an enormous object is on one of the, one of the runways. I mean, we don't get... On one of the runways? On one of the runways. This would have been part of the 1992-93 events. Really? Um, don't don't hold me to the date, but it was it was in that time frame. Uh, imagine the um, commotion that we had here stateside with the Chicago Hair UFO. Sure. Yeah. This stuff is happening down there in their airport. It gets reported, it's acknowledged, but no one ever wants to you know go into great detail about it. I well, guess. Well, comes again to... though, which we always wonder about here. Why aren't these things happening stateside? Or at least we don't hear about them. I think if there was a UFO on a runway, boy, there would be a tremendous amount of attention. Here. Well, I just want to understand that, Scott. You're talking about this This thing was landed on the runway, it was down? Hovering over the runway. Hovering uh, over. Allegedly, allegedly one mile across. Um, a mile across. A mile across. This is how the story goes oh, as the author consigned it in his book. And as I said, this is just one of many, one of many cases. And the author ends his book with the very, very clear caution that this will go completely unacknowledged until a disaster occurs, until there is some kind of aviation catastrophe. No one will discuss the fact that Mexico City International is this UFO hotspot. As I said, if you can just check on our, on our website, nextplicatablogspot.com, the most recent cases are simply aircraft coming in for a landing, five objects emerging from clouds, uh, the aircraft, uh, we have the aircraft uh, model number, we have the flight number, and of course, the idea would be, if we had more people on the ground in Mexico City, to try to get a copy of the manifest for those flights, to interview witnesses who may be willing to speak, etc. As it is now, we rely on excellent information and dedication provided to us by Ana Luisa Siv, a Mexican school teacher who's taken it on to herself to be the one honest broker, you know, when it comes to, you know, to gathering these reports, whether it be photographic 
or or in print and uh, making it available to us. That's fascinating. And the point I wanted to make about Mexico City before, in terms of the size, and you brought up the fact that it's it's sort of hemmed in by mountains, which has created a terrible, terrible, I think almost unequaled pollution problem in that city. And when I look at the, I think it's important that when we, we consider the amount of activity in Mexico City in contemporary times, it's maybe not unreasonable to think that perhaps there is some interest in the level of pollution on the part of whatever inhabits these craft. It's almost as if they're studying this because it is a fairly unique situation. I have read in different places that it is estimated that the pollution, the amount of toxins in the air in Mexico City is almost unprecedented, probably only matched by some of the bigger cities in China, I would guess. But the other thing is, if, and this is, of course, something that might be fanciful. You know, there used to be only two ways, neighbors, to meet for business, over the phone or in person. Well, now there's a better way. Use GoToMeeting to meet online. With GoToMeeting, everyone sees your computer desktop on their computer screen. So you get the best of both worlds. It's like meeting in person, but without wasting time and money traveling. And you know what the airlines are doing these days. It's a complete mess. And remember this, your conference calls will be more effective. The best part is that you can try GoToMeeting free right now for 30 days. For this special offer, you must visit www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts. That's gotomeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. Brain Tonic. The smart antidote to head fog, the world's first organic botanical-based caffeine-free think drink designed for mental focus and clarity. Tastes great, super safe, with no caffeine crash. Just great fuel for your cranium. No chemical preservatives, no sugar, no fake anything. Check it out at www.maxsales.com slash tonic. That's spelled with a T-O-N-I-Q. That's www.maxsales.com slash tonic. Again, the spelling T-O-N-I-Q. Check it out today. This is the Paracast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. You never know what's going to happen next. On the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, we probe the fanciful and not so fanciful. And I should also mention that Scott Carellis, our Latin American UFO expert, has joined us. And that is, if the occupants of the UFOs were, for a long-term basis, based on Earth, getting to the crypto-terrestrial hypothesis, they would be very, very concerned with polluted cities, with global warming, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's curious to to just know that in that regard, a lot of, remember, uh, Mexico and Latin America still have their contact teacher tradition, which we sort of have either sloughed off over the years or it's just simply become part of the new age current. Uh, current. But their messages do seem to uh, contain this environmental message of 
the world being degraded to the point where you will no longer be able to to drink, to breathe, all the things that you know that simply you need to survive. Relegating this to, to the paranormal aspect of things, if you had your actual crypto-terrestrial creatures, which according to many do exist in the Iposlan area in those mountains, your subterranean entities or what have you, they're probably thinking, look, we are suffering from all the activity above ground. We have to keep tabs on this. Further north in Mexico, towards San Luis Potosí, going north toward Monterrey, you've always had this intense UFO activity since back in the 70s. And also the same manifestation of perhaps diminutive creatures seemingly more involved with nature, uh, more like elemental creatures than anything mm. else. And mm -hmm. that's always been very fascinating because Mexico's cattle mutilations were also occurring in that general area. Querétaro, San Luis Potosí, Monterrey. And the, the, the chance with cattle mutilations that they are trying to ascertain what's going on, what's going on with these bovines, I mean, what's killing them. But see, here's the thing about that, Scott. Cattle mutilations is something we really, we really haven't covered much on the Paracast. And one of the reasons for that, I think, is that we, we just haven't had the kind of guests who is capable of addressing this in a substantial and scientific way. I know that in my own perusings of the cattle mutilation situation, it, it occurs to me that it's very murky. It's very murky in a lot of ways. There, there does seem to be some kind of government involvement in some of it. Uh, some of it does appear to be part of some sort of weird religious practices and rituals that we, quite frankly, don't know about. And then some of it appears to be genuinely odd. Uh, genuinely unusual where you have the things that are removed in ways where there is no blood and so forth but uh, I suppose we've brought this up on the Paracast before I guess a question that, that I would have would be if, if you have crypto-terrestrial creatures and they're trying to gauge the health of the surface why would they come back and persistently go after things like cattle I don't know, I, this is where my own limitations of my understanding of all this and certainly Biology was never my best class at school. I'm, I, I always did much better, better at physics than biology. It's a little curious to me. I, I, I almost think it's, it's almost too murky to weave this into the UFO discussion. In terms of the, the, the mutilated cattle that were found in this one area that you're just talking about, what kind of reports about how they were mutilated emerged? I mean, did these things appear to have been operated on with surgical techniques that were beyond the capabilities of the people in the area? Well, I think that your cautious approach toward all this is actually the way that we should all handle it. Certainly, just you don't you don't jump into cattle mutilations with both feet. I mean, really, it's a, it's, a, it's a very odd field, and I think that none of us or very few of us have that kind of medical veterinary background to let us say something one way or another. Right. But through in Mexico, those cases have always been, as I said, Querétaro, San Luis Potosí, that the northern part of the country. And they've also included, see, this is the problem, you have a lot of folklore associated with them. The presence of lights that jump from hilltop to hilltop, the so-called brujas or witches. And whenever these were seen, I mean, if it, I think a lot of people stateside may have read, I think it was Oscar Lewis's uh, The Children of Sanchez. And those lights are actually described during one of the pilgrimage scenes in the book. And they set off consternation among the, you know, the, the rural population. 
because these witches go around draining their victims of blood. So once you move from that folkloric uh, aspect to the practical one, you start finding the exsanguinated bodies, carcasses of, of animals, and you start finding, perhaps more ominously, the attacks on humans. There was an attack back in 77. A woman who was found in a sort of cataleptic state, she was alive, she had been not drained of blood, but had been relieved of some, while her baby, her babe in arms, had been completely sucked dry by some force. Our legal compilations uh, don't, aren't, aren't like the ones in the Middle East. We don't allow for the genies or anything to commit crimes. This lady went to jail for having killed her, her, her child. Yet it was such a bizarre situation. Dead baby, mother in this comatose state, both of them with puncture marks. This predates Chupacabras uh, by what, by 20 years. And yet you have reports of, I'm going to say children, as they were back then, who reportedly saw lights, they saw diminutive beings involved in some of these operations, you know. But it's good stuff for for magazine articles, but uh, nothing you can really build a house around. In one way, it's very enticing. In another way, of course, it's, it's very frustrating. More frustrating than anything. So it's good. Um, it, it's certainly something to titillate readers if you're, if you're writing in the magazine. But if you're going to say, well, I'm going to present you with cases that will, without question, describe the presence of needles uh, in Mexico, uh, you'd have you'd end up consulting more recent things from the 90s involving chupacabras and not traditional cattle mutilations. In fact, I think that was one of the, the, the biggest things that I, that I noticed when the chupacabras came about in 96, 97, 95 in Puerto Rico, 96 in Mexico, that people were busy waving in, the, in each other's faces. The, uh, the Rommel report that had been used, I guess, to just you know, debunk cattle mutilation stateside, when there was really no connection between that kind of mutilation and what the Chupacabras was doing. Chupacabras was going for small domestic animals. We had a couple of cases where it went for horses, a couple of cows now and then, but the modus operandi was completely different. The Chupacabras exsanguinated. There were no incisions, nothing with surgical precision, no missing organs, no missing genitalia, nothing, nothing of the kind. And yet, the fact that it involved animals and it had that aura of the paranormal reminded many people south of the border of what had been reported in the U.S. and Canada in the, in the mid-70s. And, of course, the fact that that had been, quote-unquote, solved by this report was also brought to bear. The transited report appeared in Mexico, it appeared in Puerto Rico, it appeared in Chile, whenever Chupacabra's manifestations would appear. So there was a conflation of these both kinds of activities south of the border. Now, the, the Chupacabra activity, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, Scott, it seems to have, for the most part, gone away. Is that an inaccurate statement? We do get cases of random attacks, I'd say, oh, maybe two, three cases a year. But I don't believe anyone has ever seen the creature, certainly not the creature reported in Puerto Rico in 1995. That particular entity by that description was probably never seen again, maybe not after 1996. In fact, I think in my book I mentioned April of 1996 as the last time. By the time you start seeing the Chilean wave of mutilations in the year 2000, they're describing a different entity altogether. That alone, you know, is cause for concern. I mean, are we talking about a different 
order of beings? Is it more of a paranormal thing? As I've always believed, we're an interdimensional paranormal situation where Earth enters a certain part of space or something happens that allows clear passage to an entire range of creatures to come on Earth, to, well, I'm going to say Earth, to our reality, act out, and then disappear. Certainly the Chilean activity, which was red hot in the year 2000, maybe 2001, faded out, flamed up again maybe a couple of years later, and it's been quiet ever since. It's interesting when you bring up um, the idea that perhaps some of this activity is related to the Earth's position in space or to things like, for example, the state of the Earth's magnetic fields or perhaps even the state of sunspots on the sun. I mean, people would probably say, well, okay, you're going on a stretch here. You're going out on a limb trying to connect these things. But certainly we know that the planet goes through cyclic changes, cyclical changes, and we know that our sun goes through cyclical changes. And we know that there are aspects, certainly, and one could look at the planet Earth right now, what's going on with the climate, and clearly understand that there is some sort of a cycle that is happening right now that maybe even we don't completely understand. We talk about global warming, and we talk about the idea that uh, carbon put back into the atmosphere from largely human activity could be the primary cause of this. But the truth of the matter is, and, and there might be a ge geologist or two listening to this that will slap me around for saying this, but the truth is that we don't yet have a really good handle on the climactic cycles, cycles that the planet Earth goes through. We have some knowledge of it. I mean, we, we have studied, you know, the ice cores that are retrieved from the poles and looking at the deposit of certain types of, of, of chemicals and the deposit of certain types of matter over time that tells us something about the geological history of the planet. But, for example, I would say that we probably don't understand much about the cycles that our magnetic fields go through because we have somewhat of an understanding of what probably generates our magnetic fields, but not absolute understanding. Because the fact of the matter is we, we don't really know what goes on maybe 20 miles below the surface of the planet. We have theories, but there's no direct observational evidence to support some of these theories. I would agree, most definitely. Certainly, if we start looking at ceremonial magic as we understand it from mm -hmm. the grimoires that have been left from the 14th, 15th century, the position of the stars, the constellations, was very, very important for certain conjurations. Whether this is just misunderstood foolishness from that time, I mean, we don't know. But certainly, it could be that whenever the planet in its orbit uh, comes across certain regions of space, or as you said, sunspot activity, something happens, something, a situation occurs that allows passage. Maybe not even passage, but more permeability versus less permeability. Well, permeability, there you go. That's a, that's a great word. Right, uh, right. As I said, many times you have, it's no problem for a human, and I think I may have mentioned this the last time I was on the show, to put on a scuba diving outfit and go into the water, hang out with the fish, do whatever. A fish is hard put to do that. It can see the human coming into its element, but it has no idea where it's going when it leaves. It cannot imagine that there's a shore and the beach and a research facility. Uh, and many times we are in the position of the fish. We can see the entities that are able to come into our medium, engage in whatever activity they seem to be doing, certainly for their benefit, and then leave, whether we see them depart, whether they vanish before our eyes. And we find that actually very, very hard to take. We're accustomed by physical creatures to yes. see things approach and depart. 
you not know, materialize. It's funny you brought up that metaphor, that analogy, um, because our friend Jeff Ritzman had been reading the latest book by Michel Kaku, the physicist, who I guess in his latest book about hyperdimensional realities uses just that type of an example to explain how we would perceive a multiverse and how it would interact or intersect with our sensory input devices. He uses that exact example of fish in the water and uh, one of their fish getting pulled out by a hand that comes into the water and the fish have no real understanding of the medium that lies beyond the top of the, the surface of the water. They don't know what's outside of that. They know something's outside of it, but they don't know what. So a hand reaches in, grabs a fish, takes it out, and then the fish is gone. And the other fish are like, well, what happened to our buddy? I don't know. Where did he go? They have no no conception of where it could have gone. And then the fish is put back into the water. The hand comes back in, drops the fish back in. And now the fish has a tale to tell that it was surrounded by these completely unusual looking creatures that were breathing in something that wasn't water. And they were examining him and, and fish was having a hard time breathing. And the fish is trying to explain what this other reality was like, but because the other fish have no point of reference of dryness, they just don't understand. It's not part of their lexicon. It's not part of their language. Hey, listeners, did you know that Fate is the oldest and best-known publication on the paranormal? Well, since 1948, Fate has provided their readers with fascinating in-depth articles on subjects like psychics and spiritualists, ghosts and hauntings, UFOs and aliens, as well as readers' true personal mystical experiences. For under $20, you can keep up with all the latest information. To subscribe, call now at one 800 728 2730 or visit Fate's website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. So what are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. Well, that explains a lot of things which we can go into, but if I tell you that we have Scott Corrales joining us and bring ourselves up to date with Latin American sightings, but also with general discussions about UFO reality, and I really get off on what you're saying there, David. It's just like three-dimensional creature trying to discern fourth-dimensional, something that's alien to their environment. How do you understand what it's all about? Ultimately, you don't. You can talk about it all you want, and that's why we have the paragraph to talk about these things that maybe there's a chance we'll, we're never going to handle on any of this. Now, now, Scott, I want to go back to Argentina, and I mean, I, I really want to go back to Argentina. I was there twice last year, and I fell in love with Buenos Aires. I love that city. That's truly the it's, Paris of the Southern Hemisphere. Oh, That's man. What a great, great city. Uh, you don't at any moment think that you're in a typical South American city. It's like being in Europe. Absolutely. It's amazing, and don't get me started on the ice cream. So, <laughs> ay, Dios mío, salva mi, mi alma. 
I want to talk to you about a couple of the cases, a few of the cases that are on your excellent blog. And we'll, of course, have a link to your Inexplicata blog from our site. There is a, there's a photo. There's an episode, and this is, I guess, from um, Malargue. Uh, El Caso de Malargue, that's correct. Malargue, okay. So there's a photo up there of what appears to be a classic disc craft in the middle of the sun. Before I tell you what I think about this, I'm curious, what do you know about this case? What have you been able to gather about this case? Without the information in front of me, I remember the case involved four men in a pickup truck. They were driving from work back home. They saw this object. One of them takes a picture of it with a digital camera, Mm -hmm. takes a series of photos, I believe it's seven images, uh, before the object departs. Great consternation. There are other witnesses involved as well. And, of course... Everyone has said it's impossible to take a picture of an object against the sun. The next report we have is a follow-up from Luis Burgos and his photo analyst explaining how it's perfectly possible to take a picture of such an object against the sun. Well, here's a question for you. Do you have access to the sequence of pictures? There's only one shown on on your blog. I believe that when we published Luis Burgos' follow-up, we have a sequence of three images. Tried to find if that would have been in uh, last month. Okay, I'm going to want to see those because I tell you, I was looking, just before we called you, I was looking at uh, this one image that's on there. The thing is right in the center of the sun, and then there's a close-up, and they ran some Photoshop looks like some Photoshop filters. There's an emboss filter. There's a uh, false contour filter. There's a find edges filter inverted. And again, I, I would love to see the original data, the original images on this. But from what I can tell, this one photo that I saw where it's right in the center of the sun, right. there is halation around the object that makes me think it was pasted in. There is a, a very distinct line that would indicate a difference in brightness between the immediate surrounding of this craft and what's immediately around it. That, I have to tell you, with something that was supposedly shot in front of the sun, you would not see that artifact. You just wouldn't. So well, I have concern with that one image, and I would want to see, I guess, the other images in the sequence. I'll spend the time looking through the blog to find them. Right. there. That would be in the May update. In May. I'm looking at them right now, the three photos. The controversial Malarga UFO, Argentina, by Luis Burgos. The images that you see there are the original, yeah. is the third in the sequence, and the other two are part of the analysis by Jose Luis Figueras, who's the analyst for uh, FAO. As I said, you could anything could be said. I, I'm not a photo analyst myself, so I go by whatever you know their experts tell me. If they say that it didn't, this was taken with a cell phone and that this was actually has been investigated by them, I, I don't doubt their expertise, shall I say, based on other cases that they've also done. But then again, do they know enough about digital technology, about the way cell phones work, to say without a doubt that this was? Not a paste-up. All we have is the text of the uh, the report that uh, Mr. Burgos has given us, in which he explains their findings regarding the photo. I, I found these other images, and they honestly, what's problematic about these is that they all show the object in just about the exact same position, right almost smack dab in the center of this burst of light that's obviously the sun, 
I don't know, Scott. This does not look legitimate to my trained eyes. This does not well, look. I'm not saying that it isn't. No, 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 no. You know, no. I'm and, just saying, and, not being an analyst myself, I will, yeah. you know, will go with anyone's learned opinion. But I'm just saying, he may I read out what uh, Mr. Burgle said? Yes, please, please. He says the analyses, having employed all of the filters, the object indeed presents contours, edges, and even a reflection of its own image in one of the photos. But when all of the photos are superimposed. The object's location is also the same, which is what you're saying. It right. seems to be fixed in the photos between the sun and the camera. Untrustworthy, obviously. Impossible, not at all. With regard to the low resolution of cellular or low-quality cameras, which present central dark spots when aimed at the sun, not in all cases, and sometimes strange oval objects, this is not the case. Here we have a classic two plates joined at the edges shape not an oval or an ovoid. It is obvious that it would be henceforth necessary for naysayers to prove the hoax, as there is no confusion here. It's either UFO or hoax, and in the case of the latter, we would be speaking in terms of retouching a dark spot produced in the photos. So, you know, that's just the verbiage that he's employing. Right. But, but beyond the- that, I couldn't tell you whether it's real or not. I would defer to an expert. And right. obviously you're an expert, so there you go. When it comes to this topic, yes, sadly I am. And again, I'm not trying to completely trash this without seeing better images. But again, I'm seeing a telltale sign of manipulation that this, that whatever this was, this object, it looks to my eyes to have been introduced to the photo. It, it really does. Uh, and I have to see exactly what their photo analyst said about how you would have something, a dark object like this, resolve against a, a, a bright backlight situation, which, again, is supposedly the sun. And it looks to me like it's the sun. Uh, there are certainly uh, flare elements and, uh, and other artifacts that would indicate that it is the sun that was being shot but I, I also would find it almost impossible to think that you'd have something. Well, let me put it this way. If the disc is in the same position, it looks like the car has moved. The disc is in the same position against the sun. That would indicate that the disc would have to be very, very far away from wherever the shot was taken to not have moved position. Now, for the disc to have been that far away and to now have this shape of a disc... Well, it would be a really, really, really big disc. Now, there are some reports in UFO history of very large disks. Those are fairly uncommon. I mean, we do have them. We definitely have of them. Course, I've, sure. I've read at least three or four that I can think of on the top of my head. Usually when we have a craft that would be like this, these dimensions, it would not be a disc. But then the idea that it's far away from the camera in front of the sun and it then resolves in the photograph that's taken with a digital camera. And that really, to me, that's almost the smoking gun, that it was taken with a digital camera. A digital camera sensors are not accurate enough to be able to essentially image something against a bright sun that has that clear of a defined edge. I submit that this is impossible for a digital camera to have shot and, and having fact- it be real. Yeah. It was not a digital camera, it was a cell phone. A cell phone, I'm sorry, a cell, cell phone. phone. Yes. Right, 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 a cell phone. The, the sensor in a typical cell phone is small enough and also does not have the kind of sensitivity to light that, a, for example, a real digital camera would have. Thanks for correcting me on that. You know, um, there was an estimate, by the way, David, that the cost, for example, of the sensor for the iPhone, which is supposed to be a high-end phone, is maybe worth less than $5 
on this well, higher level. And the camera in an iPhone is terrible. Sure. It's terrible. And actually, actually, that was one of the things that people were very upset about with Apple was that the camera in the 3G iPhone still appears to be a fairly low resolution, fairly low quality two megapixel camera. And so, yeah, that anything that's shot with a with a cell phone camera is always problematic. And and I'm speaking from having had the experience with Jeff Ritzman of spending significant time analyzing the one shot that came out of O'Hare that we felt was potentially a very legitimate shot was a cell phone camera shot, which makes it really difficult. But we found things about that image that indicated to us that whatever was was actually shot in the camera was there in, in the sky. I mean, it, it did not it did not show the kind of telltale sign that, that I'm seeing in this stuff. So, well, so my, my background is political science and Spanish literature, so I wouldn't be much help <laughs> to anyone. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 no. Hey, listen, <laughs> we we appreciate the fact that you bring all the cases to light. And, uh, you know, from what I can tell, reading your stuff, Scott, you certainly don't draw any conclusions yourself about any of this. You're, you are, as I said at the beginning of the show, you're a conduit, a very important conduit and a bridge between the Spanish-speaking world and, you know, the, the, the English-speaking world. You're, you're providing something that I'll say this on, on air and the audience take it, will take it as they will, but certainly in that regard, I think you're providing a much more valuable role than Jaime Moussan. Oh, that's very kind. I don't know about that. <laughs> no, I do know. i, I got to tell you, I, that's my feeling about it. I do know about that. Um, we've attempted to get Jaime on the show. I met Jaime at the X conference uh, in 2006 and, and had a talk with him and saw the information he was presenting. And, and I have to say this, he showed some very interesting stuff. There was some of the video he had that was absolutely fascinating. And he mixed that in with video that was garbage. It was just trash, ridiculous stuff. And then to top it all off, like a cherry on top of a sour, uh, a sour banana split, talked about the legitimacy of the Billy Meyer case. Now, it makes me wonder what the hell he's doing. I mean, he, again, has become a go-to person with video evidence. And some of the stuff he has, I find highly compelling, really fascinating. But then he, like, he'll show something really good. And then the next piece of video footage up is an Oscar Mayer wiener hot dog with painted on wings and a little gray face stuck to the front of it, like a little gray alien face pin stuck to the front of it. And uh, and it's spraying out what looks like margaritas. Well, maybe and the point is here is that he what? is getting good information, but he has no internal filter. There's no internal filter that says, this is fake, this is real, this is in the gray basket. You know, Stanton Friedman has a gray basket where he has stuff but, that he doesn't know about. What? But he editorializes around it in a way that, quite frankly, Scott does not. Scott is not editorializing in the way that Jaime does. And, and I'm just telling this to you, Scott, because I want someone to tell you this so that you know what kind of an important role I feel you play in this. Well, again, I'm flattered. It's, it's just that I think that we all have to watch out those of us who, let's say, lack the expertise to become champions of any one image or film because certainly we don't know what we're talking. We become fans. You say, oh, this is a nice image, nice shirt. No, I'm a big fan of it. I'm going to defend it. Well, it's right. obviously a hoax. This, I'll, I'll show you how ignorant many people, you hopefully, which you know about this already, are when it comes to, um, to photography and when it comes to UFO video. A lot of the images coming out of Mexico, let's say 2003, were part of Mexico's 
a centuries-long tradition of making bright, colorful balloons. Mm -hmm. Huge globos de cantoya, these very, very large balloons that we don't have stateside, we don't have the, the artificers who make them, have been passed off as UFOs. The Buzz Lightyear balloon has been passed off as a flying humanoid. <laughs> um, oh, God. Now, if you go over to Spain, there was uh, part of the 1995... UFO. Wait a minute, Buzz Lightyear is on the phone, and he says that we'll discuss the second part of what you have to say on part two of the Paracast. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Hemos regresado al Paracast con Gene Steinberg, el judío sucio, y David Biedney, el judío limpio. Hoy estamos hablando con el señor Scott. Wait a minute. Was this the? Oh, I'm sorry. This is the English edition. Gene, That's you right. got to stop me and you got to correct it, Gene. Well, you know, I know that you wanted not to be interrupted on the introduction. You say, you know what, Gene, I have a special introduction I want to do for Scott. And please don't interrupt me regardless of what I say. So right. I was just but, respecting your wishes, my friend. But you don't know what I'm saying. So. That's right. I don't. I'm trusting you that it's not something that's obscene. <laughs> well, it actually kind of was in your case, but. That's all right. We'll leave it anyway. So, Scott, I have to tell you that uh, thanks to you, and this is, this is something that uh, we'll announce here for the first time on the Paracast, thanks to you and your advice and help, I sent an email off to uh, Hector Escalante, the fellow who is uh, behind a blog that essentially deals with uh, UFO events in Venezuela. Scott, you turned me on to this. I asked you for some assistance. You gave me the, the, the link to this guy and gave me his email address. And uh, I did something that I, I haven't really ever done. I put together a fairly extensive email in Spanish, which was uh, something that, that I don't know that I've ever really done. It was quite the uh, <laughs> it, it was quite the challenge with you know trying to get the uh, accent marks in the right places and make sure, making sure that, you know, remembering how to do accent marks on a computer. Right, and so, right. um, but it did, I was able to sort of compose this whole uh, Spanish email to him and uh, he responded to me. He's a very nice guy. He responded and, and here's the thing. I had emailed him describing to him some of the details of my July 1974 UFO encounter in Caracas. My brother had come on the show to talk about it. Anybody who's listened to the Paracast knows the story already. But what has happened, thanks to you, Scott, and I am going to be in your debt for this. <laughs> By the way, he's going to send the bill tomorrow. <laughs> All right, great. Scott, make it as high as you can, okay? Yeah, he's going to send it to you. He's going to send it to you. And I'll forward it to you. Yeah, I'm sure you will. But uh, Hector uh, apparently had heard about there being some sightings of the type that I described back in the 70s. According to, uh, to Hector, he tells me, um, I'm just going to read it right from his email here, between 1970 and 1980, according to some of the things he's read in some of the uh, magazines about this topic, there was a grand wave, a huge wave of activity in Caracas, 
and uh, it looked like it was uh, Caracas was essentially a hot zone, and then apparently a bunch of this activity was around the the mountain range, which is on the northern side of Caracas, the mountains that are essentially part of the whole Andes mountain range. It sort of goes through the top of Caracas is a is a city that's about six thousand feet up in the air. Right. And Monte Avila, the Avila yes, Mountain, Avila, yes, absolutely. which is a very distinctive uh, landmark in Caracas. There, there, used, there is a, a hotel that's at the top of it. I don't know it's a, that it's a hotel anymore, but there was a whole sort of a, 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 a tourist attraction at the top of a ho- at the Monte Avila, and you take a cable car, and I think the cable car is actually still running. Apparently, there was a bunch of activity that had been reported between 70 and 80 in that vicinity, and that's very close to where Plaza Altamira is. It's actually, if you're standing in Plaza Altamira, you look up and there's the, the Avila right in front of you. I mean, it's you, you can't escape it. So he had heard about some of this stuff and didn't know, in the case of uh, stuff happening in the 70s around the, uh, the, the Avila, he didn't really put too much faith in that. But based on my email... And based on the fact that I've given him a month and a year, I've very specifically kind of uh, honed it down, Hector says he's going to go over to the main library, and he's going to also potentially visit the, the two, three newspapers that I, that I cited. And right, he's right. going to look through their microfiche and microfilm catalogs. He's going to basically be my advocate over there, going and finding this stuff out. He was thrilled that, that you had put, that, that put him in touch with me, and he said that you know he's going to do his best to find those front-page newspaper pieces that absolutely confirm what I went through. And he, I mean, he's thrilled about it in that he says, oh, this will be great for my blog. You know, this will be just wonderful. And what I'm going to do with him next is try to figure out a way where we can actually put the word out down there. Now, Hector says to me in his email that uh, he's a journalist. He says he works for radio and television. He didn't. He wasn't more specific, and uh, and then part time he investigates the uh, the UFO topic, and he apparently uh, collaborates with some specialized magazines. I don't know if he's done any writing for AJ Gavard. I don't know who else has UFO magazines in South America. This is news uh, to they're me. very few. Trust me. <laughs> All right. Well, I think Gavard's is uh, is probably the main one, but it's in Brazil. I mean, it's in, in Portuguese. It's not even exactly. in Spanish. But anyway, Hector seems to be very gung-ho to go find this information. He is in Caracas, so he can do this. And uh, I've got to thank you for that, Scott, because if if Hector is as uh, devoted as he sounds via his email, it looks to me like there's a very good chance he's going to be able to find these newspaper pieces that confirm what I've reported on the show, in which I have to tell you, a number of people have written to me saying, you are making this up. This didn't happen. Even though my brother came on the show, confirmed the whole account. I mean, he came on, we talked about it. Uh, my brother's the kind of person, he's a private person. He doesn't want to be really associated with this topic at all publicly. And he came on the show to confirm what we had seen. So it'll be great if, if Hector finds these newspaper pieces. Uh, this will be, I think, pretty big news for the UFO world, especially because it did involve a cigar ship. It involved discs coming out of a cigar ship that hasn't been seen too many times, just well, a handful. I'm glad I'm glad that I was able to uh, steer you in the right direction, certainly. Thank you. And to those of your listeners who doubt that these cases occur, or that your particular case took place, Cerro El Avila is, one, is probably the Venezuelan hotspot 
for decades. Mm-hmm. Um, as first, the year 2000, we had cases involving the materialization of craft. A couple of years ago, we reported on um, triangular-shaped objects being seen in traffic uh, by a number of witnesses, and people just very, very take these things in stride. But the 2000 case was fascinating, that if I recall, it was an object in a cloud. It seemed to be using the cloud for concealment, something to that effect. So it's one of those mountains, El Avila is one of those mountain ranges, very much like a Yunque in Puerto Rico, that can be a materialization point, a dematerialization point, something in between. So yes, yes, certainly, I think people should read up more about what goes on there before they say your experience never happened. Well, I'm just amazed how folks can say it never happened, they weren't there. Yeah, well, that's what's sad also, and I'll just point out here that a lot of other people come on the show with sightings. People report sightings in our forums, which we now know that you're going to participate in regularly, Scott, of course, because oh, you committed it. yourself. <laughs> so we know that we have that level of participation, and we never, we never go in there unless a sighting or some kind of claim sounds really bogus to say you didn't have that experience. We never do that, but for some reason, because David does a radio show, some people have been quick to say, you know what, it never happened, that's absurd, and that's as far as I'll go with it. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to take this opportunity now to mention something I've never brought up on the show, okay? And it's not a major thing, but it's really interesting. And it's one of these things people always email me saying, you know, tell your stories, tell tell what you've seen, tell your stories. You know, what's what experiences have you, have you had? And I've been talking about things gradually. I, I'm not about to dump everything out at once, and there's a lot of stuff I'm never going to talk about ever. That's just the way this is. And some of this I'm going to keep private. But it's interesting, Scott, you talked about a craft that conceals itself in a cloud. Right. All right. So here's a, here's a bizarre story. I think it was about two, three years after we got to Venezuela, we decided to take a vacation. And uh, my mother wanted to go to Aruba, the, the, the island of Aruba. And the way it went down, my, my dad had this uh, 1969 Mercedes 280 SEL. He loved this car. What a piece of garbage this car was. It was, it was the only Mercedes-Benz lemon in perhaps all of history. That's, well, I'll tell you something. I've had the other two. Really? Back in the 80s, I had a 1985 Mercedes-Benz 190E. First of all, it was a ding magnet. The metal they used on it was so thin. This is like super tangent, Gene. We know that. And I had a 300E, and my nephew and myself both had miserable, miserable experiences. I know it relates to nothing. It no, is actually, totally it does important. Re- no, no, no. See, it relates to Jews can't own Mercedes. That's <laughs> My mother warned my father when he went to go buy this car. She's like, Lewis, don't do this. Don't buy this car. My father's my like, what are you talking about? It's, it, it's a cream puff. It was a beautiful, I mean, it's a beautiful car. My mother said to my father, don't buy this thing. He bought it. It was a nightmare from the day he got it. It was just an absolute nightmare. But here's the thing. So what we were going to do is we were going to drive from Caracas. Right. We were going to go west, and we were going to drive up to a port town called Punto Fijo, which in, 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 in English is fixed point. And in Punto Fijo, there was a ferry you could get. You take the car, get on a boat, and go for a ferry ride, at, which took you to Aruba. So now you would go there, absolutely, and you would have your car in Aruba. So we decided to do this trip. So we drove from Caracas to Punto Fijo, got on the on the ferry. But anyway, 
we're driving, and God knows where we were in the country. I mean, I qualify. So it's like you know, it's like twelve, thirteen years old at the time. Actually, I think I was thirteen when we did this. And my father said, you know, it's an interesting thing. We're going to be driving this one stretch of road, and and, and the vistas and the the land, you know, looking at these incredible mountains and stuff. Just you know, we don't really have anything like that in the states, except for maybe the Rocky Mountains. And when you drive through Idaho and you see the Rocky Mountains, it's one of the most spectacular things I've ever seen. But my father told us, I'll never forget this. He said, you know, there's this one mountain. It's a very high mountain on the way. He said, this mountain always has a cloud at the top of it, always. And we were like, well, what, well, well, Dad, what about like when it's clear out? He's like, it doesn't matter. This mountain always has a cloud. It's perpetual. There's always a cloud sitting right on this mountain. And the people in the area have all sorts of stories about this. And, and I don't remember a lot of those sort of ancillary stories, but I'll tell you what I do remember. On the way to Punto Fijo, we drove by, and my father pointed it out. He's like, there it is. And there was this mountain. And, guys, it was a clear blue sky. There were maybe a couple of wispy high-altitude clouds. And so help me, this, this mountain had a cloud sitting right on top of it, right over the top of it. Big cloud. And it, and it wasn't... In well, Puerto Rico. It, uh, here's the thing. So people are gonna are on the show are now gonna say, well, "Where's this cloud? Show us! Where is it? Where is it? Where is it?" <laughs> well, my father is passed. Calm so down. I want you to have a coronary, David. Well, I mean, you know, it's not like I can turn to my father and ask him where this mountain was. I'd love nothing more than be able to ask him that and about a thousand other things right now. But uh, I can't ask Dad where this was. I, I can't say I remember. But I'll tell you this, on the way to Punto Fijo, this mountain had a cloud sitting right on top of it. The cloud was not moving. It's really, really weird. I mean, I remember what it looked like. It was strange as hell. And we pulled the car over. We stopped the car, and we got out, and we looked at this thing for like 10 minutes. And this is the weirdest thing. The cloud did not move. It was sitting on that mountain. And, and I remember looking up, and it was like a clear sky. And I thought, what the hell's going on here? And my father didn't really, you know, put huge amount of importance on like, oh, we're going to drive up there and find out. I mean, it was nothing like that. It's just like, look at that. It's always had that cloud on top of it. Isn't that strange? And who knows? He may have taken a picture of it. I don't know. I certainly don't remember that level of detail. But I do also remember when we came back, we went to Aruba, had a really fun time. That's a whole long story, not for the show, and took the ferry ride back. And we were passing this, uh, this mountain again, daytime. This time, I remember there being more clouds up in the sky, but the cloud looking almost identical to the cloud on the way in a week later, maybe eight, nine days later, we come back, and wouldn't you know, that cloud was sitting on that mountain. I mean, it's Amazing. just the strangest thing, and I don't know that I've told that story in, in, in 20 years so help me. I don't know that I, I don't know that I've ever told that story really, but there it is. Well, I don't know what to I'm, make of it. I'm, I'm looking at my atlas right now, and I was shocked to see how close Puerto Fijo actually is to Aruba. I'll tell you what. As he's yep. looking for Aruba, hi, this is Timothy Green Beckley, otherwise known as Mr. UFO. 
reporting live for the Conspiracy Journal. And we have a special offer for the listeners of the Paracast. Want to receive our publications for free? Conspiracy Journal and Bizarre Bizarre sent to you via snail mail. And all you have to do is email me at MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MRUFO at WebTV.net. And we'll send you two of the most exciting publications. But we do need your actual address because these are physical publications. And you'll enjoy all the latest articles by some of the leading researchers in the field, as well as up-to-date information on the latest book and videos and it's all for free or drop us a line mr ufo at webtv.net hi i'm paul kimball documentary filmmaker with the blog the other side of truth and you're listening to the paracast with my pals david biedney and gene steinberg We're looking at the fact that on the PowerCast, we're talking to Scott Carellis, an expert in Latin American UFO sightings and a genuine all-around nice guy. <laughs> <laughs> so you see, Punto Fijo, is, I think it was like a seven- or eight-hour ferry ride. Wow. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't it, it, it's fairly close. Uh, I'll tell you this, it was a rough sea on the way out, and I got so seasick going from Punto Fijo to Aruba, there was no problem on the way back because my parents had gotten a hold of Dramamin. And I took Dramamin coming back. But on the way out, I got sick as a dog on that boat. There was not a stable sea. It was pretty choppy. And, I mean, the ferry was a pretty decent size. We're not talking about a small sh a small boat. This was a ship. It was a you know, pretty nice-sized thing. Who knows how many cars. It's got to be at least 100 cars were on this thing, maybe more. I don't know. But it was pretty big. I remember that, and it's always been in the back of my mind, that cloud, and I'm kind of like imagining it in my mind right now, and, and I have a pretty clear image in my head. The cloud was not right next to the road. It was a ways from the road a bit. It's probably, I would say, miles away from the Actually, it was definitely miles away from the road. There was a good amount of flat land between where we were on the road and this mountain. It was a pretty high mountain. I suppose I could go try to look for this in Google Earth, I, I could. I, I can't say I remember where this mountain is. And at this point, my, my dad's gone, so I wouldn't even know who to ask about this. Well, you know, if, if the word Paraguaná helps you at all, that seems to be the name of the peninsula. That could well be the name of the mountain. Paraguaná. Hmm. Paraguaná. All right. It, it's, well, it's worth searching. You know, one day, one day either I will actually have some real money to my name or... Uh, this show will actually move forward in a way that will allow us, will finance a trip down to Venezuela. Because between finding the ancillary data around my UFO sighting, visiting the Canaima region, and we haven't, I think we might have talked about that last time you were on, but since then I've done a little bit of research and find out that this Canaima region of, of Venezuela, which is where the Angels Falls are, it's a huge hotspot for UFO activity. A lot of it is extremely remote. A lot of it has ever, never actually been visited by like human beings. There are some, some places uh, where literally, as far as people know, no one has ever gone. And one of the most compelling UFO photos that I've ever seen uh, that's actually recently got a little bit of traffic on the forums, it's something that Bruce, Dr. Bruce McAbee has in his, in his UFOs Are Real book. And it was a, a shot of a UFO shooting a beam of light down into this, into these clouds. 
At first, I thought it was water. Turns out it is indeed clouds. Um, and it's one of the best UFO photos I've ever seen, and I, and I maintain that. And um, it came out of this Kanaima region. And it turns out I was also in touch last year with a gentleman who, I, I guess at the time, was running these tours for tourists of paranormal hotspots in the Kanaima region. And he even supposedly had some map that he had made pinpointing a lot of areas where there have been specific types of UFOs seen and other specific types of paranormal phenomena. And then I never heard back from him. I had actually given him my address. He was going to send me one of these maps. And and I don't know what happened. I know that at this point, you know, for an American to go to, to Venezuela, uh, um. <laughs> it'd be a little iffy. Um, it's also, even if all the other situations and all the other things were in decent shape, these yeah. days just getting involved with airplane travel has become a total, total monstrosity, a mess. Oh, yeah, but you still, there's no other way to really travel around the world if you're going to go to South America. I don't, I don't know. Well, Scotty, call Scotty. Yeah, yeah, sure, he's taking a reservation up. for well, no. those who want to be beamed up. Seriously. No, seriously. I mean, you know, it'd be nice to be able to, to get a trip funded to go down and do like a two or three week long investigative tour of the country and go gather a bunch of information because in South America... Certainly, Venezuela has been a, a hotspot for a long time. It's probably one of the most, uh, certainly in the South American continent, it probably has some of the most highest levels of activity besides perhaps Brazil. I think is, Brazil, Argentina, Chile. Chile used to be the, uh, the can't-miss uh, hotspot for, for UFOs for many, many years. But now that you're mentioning the Andes, that part of the northern hump of South America, there was that uh, Congreso Mundial de, Bru de Brujería in 1975, the World Witchcraft uh, huh. Conference. And apparently magic users, practitioners of all kinds showed up. And there was a lot of discussion about a um, apparently racist, I don't want to call them racist, but strange groups of practitioners of magic in Venezuela and Colombia and the mountains holdovers from allegedly a past civilization. I mean, there's so many things that you could actually do on the ground if security allowed for it in Colombia and if politics allowed for it in Venezuela. That's what all these things don't get yeah. done. Well, I mean, I got news for you. Uh, security is also a huge problem in Caracas at this point with the devaluation of the believer. The friends that, I, that my brother has been in touch with, my brother just went back a couple of years ago for a uh, high school reunion and got to connect with a lot of the people that he hadn't spoken to in a long time. And it turns out that in, in Caracas, things are dangerous enough where most people who are moving around the streets are carrying handguns. Um, yeah, crime is at a pretty high level um, because uh, people are so poor. The devaluation of the believer makes uh, the devaluation of the dollar look like a joke. I mean, it's a terrible situation, just a terrible situation. So there'd be security issues in Venezuela as well, of course. In both countries. In both countries. I mean, uh, uh, I mean, Colombia has always been infamous for being a very dangerous place. And that's something that, I mean, that's like you could do a whole show about South American culture. And, uh, Not only that, but I mean, if, if to stay in Venezuela, it would just be fascinating to look into the Maria Leonza cult, which is one of those very poorly known cults that some say it's a positive one, some say it's diabolical, and that nevertheless is one of the main, I guess, driving forces in, uh, in that country. I mean, a lot of people, in order to achieve success, uh, I'm sure that even 
President Chavez is a practitioner of the Maria Leonza cult. I know there were some uh, movie stars in the 70s who felt that they had to join in huh. order to advance uh, in that country, in the Venevision, in the big network. Uh, big TV uh, network down there. Yeah, really? That's right. It was Jose Luis Rodriguez, his name was. Uh, mi amigo El Puma, as he, as he was known my at friend, the time. My friend, uh, my friend the Puma. Puma. That's yeah. right. <laughs> and he, he had joined the, the cult uh, in order to get ahead, and then um, he repented and became a Pentecostal minister for a while before going back to acting. But it's one of these cults that no one talks about, everyone knows about. The <laughs> mountain of Sorte, one of the big mountains in Yaraqui, in the province of Yaraqui, is supposed to be where Maria Leonza is worshipped. But she's also venerated much more presently in the incredibly dangerous Venezuelan uh, uh, penal system in, in their jails. They have a number of different cults that I think have only been studied superficially, but that seems to be the, the biggest one. Uh, the entire country, much like you could say that Candomblé is, underlies all of Brazil or Santeria underlies a lot of the Caribbean, speaks much yeah. of the Caribbean, you have that very same Maria Leonza thing in Venezuela. Now, Scott, do you think that these kinds of realities in South America have created a psychological environment by where paranormal entities of any color that you wish to paint them, that they find an easier potential for manifestation in those countries because of this belief system? I mean, is this, does you think this has any bearing on what you were referring to before as the, the sort of the intensity and the, the colorfulness of these kinds of events, like certainly UFO sightings down there, is this partly, do you think, influenced by the fact that people in South America simply have a more supernatural belief system? I wouldn't rule it out entirely. I know that it's once you start saying yes, you'd start getting involved with the fact that there's syncretism because of African slaves bringing in their beliefs, and you have the holdovers of native beliefs, and Catholicism being the cement that joins both European, Indian, and African beliefs. But once you have any place where ceremonial magic is practiced, you could say, well, you have these imbalances, perhaps rituals that may have no actual effect in the physical world, mm -hmm. nonetheless create a state of suggestion through which a human can see things, or through which entities can then manifest. Then you start going into things like possession, which is a, a major component uh, in these religious as part of the dances, the different dances that induce a state of possession that could then allow beings to incarnate even briefly in the uh, in, our, in, in our, 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 our physical medium. It's always been said that when ufology, let's say the, the belief in aliens became big in South America, it was simply taken uh, quite logically, accepted at all levels of society, as simply the next level in the belief in spiritism. You know, spiritism is huge in Brazil. It's always been among the educated classes. Spiritism has always been seen as, um, let's say, the thinking man's philosophy. So aside from having your typical, the, the native spirits, you had your uh, spirits of the native, spirits of African slaves, the spirits of all those European doctors for some reason, called Dr. Fritz, Dr. Hans, Dr. this, Dr. that, 
uh, they said, well, aliens, the Space Brothers, would be the next highest level of spirit that you'd come in touch with. So once you had that level of that, that acceptance, maybe people didn't feel, well, we have to reject this outright. Well-thinking people do not think of such things, which I find seems to be the, um, the reaction in an Anglo-Saxon uh, matrix. Mm-hmm. That right-thinking people ignore these things. These are the superstitions of you know of savages. We have nothing to do with this. We go to church on Sunday, but no, down there was simply well, no, no, no. If if if, it's, if there's any truth to it, this would be the next possible rung of uh, the okay. So a lot of this is the attitude and the society and the culture there. Brain tonic. The smart antidote to head fog, the world's first organic botanical-based caffeine-free think drink, designed for mental focus and clarity. Tastes great, super safe, with no caffeine crash. Just great fuel for your cranium. No chemical preservatives, no sugar, no fake anything. Check it out at www.maxsales.com slash tonic, that's spelled with a T-O-N-I-Q. That's www.maxsales.com slash tonic. Again, the spelling T-O-N-I-Q. Check it out today. Hi, this is Brad Steiger, and I'm in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietney. Join us as we explore new dimensions of thought. We're talking to Scott Corrales our favorite Latin American UFL expert. We haven't had too many on the show, but you're a numeral uno amongst all the people that we've had on about that and also the entire framework of UFOs. Okay, so we look at the culture and how people are there and a willingness to accept things. Does that control what you do perceive in terms of UFOs, whether you're more sensitive to events? I would like to think that when I went to school in Mexico City and our, our teachers were telling us, you know, you and, and your future will include contact with non-humans, they were excited. They were terribly excited about Man on the Moon, which I don't think very many people were. People took it either there were posters everywhere. Uh, NASA was treated with great reverence, still is. Anything coming from NASA is given, you know, a pride of place. And the average man on the street seemed to be much more inclined, this is back in the 70s, to accept this reality and just roll with it, as we would say nowadays. Now, in the, way, in the wake of all the, um, the commercialization of the 90s, all the different disappointments that have taken place, I find that there's what's being called el neguismo, the, um, the mm. denial of a lot of the things that, that we discuss um, as part of what we do. Uh, in fact, now in Spain, you're seeing complete rejection of what was accepted only eight, nine years ago. So if you don't accept these things, you don't see these things? Uh, perhaps people are thinking we have embarrassed ourselves by seeing these things. Let's just reject them. Uh, and yet the cases continue. Uh, as Galileo would have said, uh, it's still happening. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, but as we're talking still about... People still report them. Whether you, well, sure. whether you think you made a fool of yourself by accepting them is beside the point. They, they, still, they still happen. And I, I asked this very same question to someone in Argentina. Why do we get UFOs aside? Why do we get these amazing paranormal cases? 
And of course, the answer was, well, you know, small town people, rural people are much more accepting, they're superstitious, they see things that aren't there, what have you. But then you have the fact that if you go back to our own tradition that believes that humanity has encroached on places where the earth still had its primal force, the elementals, that maybe these, these remote areas we're talking about, let's say remote parts of Venezuela, remote parts of Argentina, remote parts of the United States, of Canada, still have this primeval reservoir of forces that tends to manifest itself as phenomena to our eyes. Part of the Spiritus Mundi, I mean, something, as I said, we can keep spinning out, hammering out hypotheses and explanations and uh, get no closer to the truth, but yet we do have the resources with which to hammer out these conjectures. Uh, and of course, as I've always said, there's a name for things that do not exist in every single culture on earth. Nixies, Pixies, Brownies, Chanekes, um, I'm trying to think some of the Argentinian terms for them. But we all have names in every culture for all these diminutive creatures affiliated to the earth, sometimes friendly to man, sometimes unfriendly. There's got to be a, a nugget of truth in there somewhere. Precisely. There, there has to be. And, and I guess what we're supposed to do is look for the commonalities and try to, at that point, figure out if there are these base issues that do constantly present themselves. I mean, you brought up spiritism, and uh, I think about the Cardasis. And one of the... Precisely. Right. One of the, the episodes we've done is about Arigo, who is certainly, and, and you know, I'll, I'll just mention it briefly, people know my feelings about this case. I feel strongly it was one of the most interesting, if not the most interesting, most well-studied paranormal case of the 20th century in many ways. And uh, uh, people think it, it's just, and they, they lump it into faith healing and like the, 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 and, or, or the kinds of things that are going on in the Philippines, the absolutely bogus faith healers that, that, that are going on there. Um, but it's clear to me, at least, from the evidence that I've known about and from reading John G. Fuller's book, The Surgeon of the Rusty Knife, and from the work that my, my father, I, I, my father did, I mentioned on, on one of these episodes that um, my father had interviewed people who had been cured by Arigo as part of a newsreel item he had been doing in, this would have been 1976, 77. He, he was working for a company in Caracas owned by a friend of his, Pedro Fuenmayor. I can't remember the name of the company, it's on the tip of my brain, the actual uh, film company, but... My father was a director of newsreels that are played in, in the movies before the movies start. And he had done a piece based on his friend Pedro's request to do this piece on bogus faith healers in the wake of the death of Arigo in 1971. When Arigo died, there were a bunch of other people that tried to sort of continue his tradition, but not possessing his abilities. And a bunch of these people had basically been duped by these charlatans. A number of these charlatans were in Venezuela at the time, and they were all over South America because Arigo was so well-known. And um, so my father did a newsreel piece about these fake guys. And uh, to offer the counterpoint, he interviewed, it was at least two or three people who had been actually cured by Arigo, like in the 60s. 
So I went with him on a couple of these interviews where he interviewed these people in their homes. And I didn't really totally speak Spanish at the time, but I remember sitting there and you know watching all this and having my father talk about it afterwards. And it was clear that here was this guy, Ari Go, who over a 20-year period probably cured somewhere on the order of a million to two million people. It was just nuts. Never took a dime for any of this. And... Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, this is all very well documented. There is uh, extensive evidence to support this. And, and it's... That, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't he yeah. also cure the niece or daughter of President Jacinto Kubitschek of Brazil? I mean, he was healing some pretty important people. Well, uh, Betancourt, he had actually, one of his first ones was on this guy Betancourt, where he had done a, a lung cancer operation on him. And this is before he even any, had any idea of what was going on. Right, then, right. Then there was there was a well-known pop star. I don't have the book in front of me, but there was a well-known musical pop star whose daughter I think he cured. Okay. Um, there were a lot of people. I mean, the, 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 getting to the whole, and we did a whole show about Arigo with a fellow who lives in Los Angeles, David Sonachin, who had gone down there, married a Brazilian woman, had kids with her, had been investigating the whole Arigo case, and he was actually working on a screenplay about it. But he had actually done a documentary about the latest incarnation that supposedly this Dr. Fritz had inhabited, this guy Ruben Faria. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this guy Ruben Faria. Um, and I have this documentary. This documentary has never really been released or anything. I have David sent me a copy of it. And it is astounding to watch. Your eyes cannot believe what you're seeing. And this is contemporary stuff. You know, this is what's not going on 30, 40 years ago. This is like, I think, I don't know if Faria is still actively involved, but I think uh, David had shot this in the 90s, and uh, or maybe even in the early part of, uh, you know, like 2001, 2002. But he's got footage of Faria walking around. I mean, it's one sequence of Faria doing brain surgery, on a woman who is awake and aware, and he's cutting into her head. And there's the, the, the graphic footage of this. You look at this and you go, oh, my God. And, and there it is. He's got a line of people. There's this thing about it. Well, anyway, not to go into all the stories now because, you know, I can really take us off topic with this. But the fact is that the most credible cases of this have emerged in Brazil. Now, at, at one point, somebody asked Arigo who was at that point in sort of being possessed by Fritz, as it were, who knows what the hell was going on. Right. Somebody asked, you know, why Brazil? Why have you chosen this place? And the answer was because this is where the need is greatest and where the people are open to it. Because I remember hearing that, well, this, is when the need are, this is where the need is greatest. I thought, what about the whole African subcontinent? I mean, you know. That's right. Why don't we get cases there? Right. <laughs> I like that, that other part. This is where people will believe maybe the phenomenon requires that the humans be open to it. I mean, that, that's also a possibility. That is a theme that has come up consistently on this show. It is a theme where uh, that seems to have some kind of an effect on people's interactions with UFOs, that those who open their minds to this are more likely to have the experience. It doesn't mean that it absolutely requires that, but it seems to definitely be part of the matrix of this. And, of course, there are people, skeptical people, who would pick this up and go, well, you know, just by the sheer fact that the people are open to it, that means it's going to happen because that their brains will take things that are relatively normal or mundane, 
and interpret them in unusual ways to which my response is, look, I totally understand that. But when you have a case like Ari Go, who was taking sharp, rusty knives and jamming them into people's eyes to remove their cataracts, these people weren't moving. Uh, you can have all of the open-mindedness in the world. If there's an, a knife poking around in your eye, you know, Absolutely. I mean, that speaks for itself. There was actually some video footage. I'll mention this now. On YouTube, for a very short amount of time, it was yanked. I don't know where it went, and I was not quick enough to grab these these clips. But there was some video footage of some of the film shot of Arigo working. Some of the stills from these film clips are in uh, John Fuller's book. But you see Arigo with a knife, and he's got this knife under a person's eyelid. And you see the knife poking around. I mean, this is not fake. This was obviously being filmed. This was obviously happening. He's got a knife that's under the guy's eyelid, and he's jamming this knife in there, and the guy's just standing there without moving. Now, at that point, you have all the belief in the world, but uh, anybody with a knife being jammed to their eye who's not undergoing a, a genuine paranormal experience is going to scream out in pain and run. Like, <laughs> you know, simple uh, stuff you like that. Did, did you mention that there was a Chico Javier who took over from uh, Arigo? Yes, this guy, Ruben. next in line. He was next in line. There were, uh, there were I think, two or three people that came after Arigo until Fritz supposedly then resided in the body of this person, Ruben Faria, who I guess was an electrical engineer. And I don't have the whole story in front of me right now. There's not a ton of stuff on this except for David's documentary, which has never been released. So not many people have ever seen it. But he was good enough to send me a copy of this. And I remember I, I sat down and started watching with my girlfriend. And, and she got literally nauseous watching this because of what's depicted. I mean, it's, it's very clear. And, and again, this is a situation where there is no way this guy was faking. One of the most insane things, and I'm going to paraphrase this so I, I may be a little off on this, but you see in the documentary, he's got this cart, and it's full of these hypodermic needles with this dark-looking liquid. And he's walking around these lines of people outside his clinic, and he's just jamming this, these hypodermics into them and push squirtinous liquid into them. And apparently this is like to prep them somehow. And what we find out, according to what comes out in the documentary, and look, I wasn't there, I wasn't smelling what was in the hypos, but David Sonnenstein seems like a totally honest person to us, and he, you know, he has his documentary. But supposedly, the stuff that was in these hypodermics was to some large degree iodine. Yeah. So... And he's jamming this into everybody's online. He's just like, boop, 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 giving them shots of what was primarily, it was some compound of stuff, it was some mixture, but the, 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 the majority liquid in these things was supposedly iodine. Now, you know, in the normal world, and I'm not a doctor, I'm not a chemist, but for crying out loud, you take a hypodermic full of iodine and shoot into somebody, I don't know, wouldn't they like topple over dead? Well, something that good's going to happen. There's no doubt. Well, they'd be screaming bloody murder, if nothing else. Yeah, hey, right? Before we scream bloody murder and our sponsors call us and complain. Hey, listeners, did you know that Fate is the oldest and best-known publication on the paranormal? 
Well, since 1948, fate has provided their readers with fascinating in-depth articles on subjects like psychics and spiritualists, ghosts and hauntings, UFOs and aliens, as well as readers' true personal mystical experiences. For under $20, you can keep up with all the latest information. To subscribe, call now at one 800 728 2730 or visit Fate's website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. So what are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You are the Paracast with Jesus and the David You never know what's going to happen next. We're talking to Scott Corellis, who's trying to laugh or at least chuckle politely at my lame jokes. So I will go back and retire as David continues his conversation about the surgeon of the rusty knife. Well, no, I, the, the hey, whole why point is it sticking in my eye right now? Yeah, yeah stick in your eye, you Jewish man. No, I mean, what we have in South America is, is a situation by where these things do happen. The culture in general seems more accepting of it, and because of this, there does appear to be some sort of feedback loop where these things do occur, occur on a more regular basis, Scott. So one of the things I want to ask you about before we run out of time, in the work that you've done looking into all of these South American cases, have you or do you know of anybody who has attempted to create a statistical analysis, sort of take a map and put the little push pins on it to try to figure out if there is any kind of a pattern that emerges from the different waves of activity in different South American countries. Has anybody done any real analysis of this that you know of? I don't believe so. I believe there has been, as we speak, uh, Cristian Quintero in the city of Bahia in Argentina is creating precisely that kind of database regarding the uh, cattle mutilations of the year 2002 in Argentina. But I don't think anyone has done a pan-South American statistical analysis. At least I don't think so. It's never been brought to my attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think for a while you had a, a oh God, Antonio Rivera in Spain had done things to that effect involving the old belief in uh, the uh, orthothenic lines, trying to include South America into the orthothenic lines of um, Aimé Michel, the French researcher. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Bavic line that went around the world and how it acted in Argentina, how it acted in Brazil, cases with regard to that line. But a lot of that statistical study seems to have taken place in the 70s, and even the UFO literature of the time is very, very, very cut-and-dried analytical material. Cases were taken as raw material to build these larger cases based largely on a flawed premise. The proximity of Mars to Earth, 
that alien that sorcerermen were going to use these bases whenever Mars was closer to earth and well there was uh-huh. also a theory at one time way back when that UFO sightings might actually increase when Mars was closer to the earth of course right. I don't think it really happened but no, that's what they no. said. these were the flawed premises a lot of this science I'm going to call it was based on at the time and we still have all these books left over from them. Very many books were published in, in South America and in Spain based on a lot of these analytical models. But the premise was usually, well, they're coming from outer space, they're from the planet so-and-so, and they're powered by this and that, and when they come to Argentina, they suck water up for their fusion reactors, and they do this and that. Never thinking that this could be a localized phenomenon, a non-physical phenomenon, a paraphysical phenomenon. There was No consideration was given to that in those in the works of the time. Perhaps now, uh, on a more regional basis, we'll start seeing a different pattern emerging. I hope so. Is there any kind of an organization, Scott, that oversees the activity in South and Central America? You know, they've always said that dealing with academics is like uh, herding cats. And I think (laughs) the same thing applies to ufologists. You do have organizations that like MUFON, set themselves up as umbrella organizations. Brazil has several. Argentina has the FAO, and it has some other uh, lesser organizations. And, of course, you have these people like to organize themselves as, let's say, Grupo Delta, Grupo this, that, and the other. They, they give themselves a name for a group, a dozen guys go out and try to act like this entity. Uh, to give themselves a measure of, uh, I don't know, of importance, respectability, perhaps be taken more seriously by the media if they're, um, if they become, they, they act as a block rather than as individuals. But I don't think you could say that there's an oversight. It's impossible. You wouldn't find anyone uh, kowtowing to any kind of oversight. It just, just wouldn't happen. So, like usual, everybody's set to left to fend for themselves, basically. Well, pretty much. I think you have some very respected organizations like the CEI and C in uh, in Spain. But those are much for associations of people with scientific background, astronomers uh, involved in UFO studies, who, who do prepare catalogs and uh, statistical samplings of old cases, things to that effect. But there's no governing organization. I know that one of the Brazilian organizations did come up with um, a book of guidelines that UFO researchers ought to follow. This was back in the 90s, and I think they felt that a lot of uh, irregularities were being committed in the name of ufology, or at least in, for the sake of saucer chasing, if nothing else. Mm-hmm. And they felt that these, these should be our guidelines, this is going to be our code. Let's see if we can get people to abide by it. Although we have no way of enforcing it. So I can't tell you if, 10 years after its publication, if it's done any good. But I think that with the, you know, with the X-Files, with the huge boom of interest, the documentaries, all the money being poured in from abroad to get information. The Japanese going to South America to prepare huge documentaries that were aired on the Japanese television. Uh, there was a lot of money around and a lot of, I guess, you know, I don't want to say unethical behavior, but a lot of people played fast and loose. Right. So there was, there was an effort, actually, to, um, to have people working off the, um, off the same page. But like I said, it's like herding cats. There's no question. Who's the person that you uh, think is one of the most important information sources and news sources for you down South America? I mean, if you had to put together even, let's say, a, a team of three people covering the scene down there, any names you want to mention of people we should be on the lookout for? 
Well, I would definitely have to mention uh, the three people who are key collaborators for um, uh, for IHU, for Inexplicada. And one of them would be Guillermo Jimenez of uh, Planeta UFO, who you see me uh, refer to continuously. He mm -hmm. operates out of the city of uh, Neken in uh, Necochea, I'm sorry, in, in, southern, um, in southern Argentina. You would have Liliana Nunez from uh, Chile. She is also very much the archivist, uh, library rat. She'll go looking for information in old newspapers. Very much the, 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 the archivist type. Then I would I would definitely think in Spain it's a shame he's he's gone, but that would have been Antonio Rivera, the true master of the field, the one the one who started it all, and uh, who was sort of the, the inspiration that everyone had for um, who, who looked in, into uh, Latin American UFOs and Latin American UFOs in Spain certainly, very much the father figure, the Alan Hynek of uh, the Sp the UFO ufology really? of the Spanish speaking world. Really. I don't know that we that we know much about him. This again, the and blank more is the pity. More is the pity yeah. because he was the one who wrote the very first books. Let's say the the so-called fat books on ufology, with all the cases, all the stats, all the hypotheses. And uh, he died pretty much forgotten as ufology in Spain became more skeptical, hmm. or it simply stopped becoming a, a vehicle for new ideas. I think you had the the younger. Researchers were very much field researchers, very much um, with a newspaper or television background, and the old guard, very much skeptical scientists trying to say, we will dole out with a dropper what information we consider to be factual and what is not. Mm. So this is Antonio Rivera, definitely a name to remember. Let me ask you a question here. We only have a few moments left, and I wanted to jump into this. We talk so much about disclosure 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 and the question being of course do you think because of the greater openness in latin america to ufo issues that maybe we'll see disclosure come from there rather than here well uh, spain had its disclosure back in 1995 for example and i think it just got people more riled up than if they just kept their cases to themselves is the government holding back on us? Why these cases? What about this other case that we knew about, but they didn't seem to have in their files? Argentina has had several releases of information. Every time, I think, as the government retreated from one of its programs, as the Navy shut down a program, but I don't. I would probably think that now Brazil, having disclosed uh, the uh, details of Operacion Parato, of Operation Plate, it's, it's Amazonian research of the late 1970s, that was one of the big disclosures in, in South America. And again, it gave rise to more controversies than, um, than it provided answers. Hmm. What did we learn from that disclosure? What was revealed that we didn't I know already? a lot of people were hoping to find, I guess it's a, a irrefutable proof of the, um, the Isle of Goyares case of 1977 when um, this village was completely... Uh, what, what's the word? It was besieged by right. strange vehicles, by the chupa chupas, as they were called, firing beams at people, all that stuff. I don't believe they ever provided enough information to satisfy their local UFO. I, I, that, that certainly, I would, I would defer to A.J. Givard or Claudia yeah. or someone like yeah. that to, to speak on that. But a lot of the video that the military had taken, a lot of the still photography that they had taken, 
that's never been seen again. And mm. that was not part of the disclosure. So, of course, you can imagine. People would say, okay, so what's this? What kind of deal do we have going here? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, we talked to AJ about that episode. Very odd. Very strange. I mean, certainly. And, and those would be the people to go to. Certainly the only book ever written was by uh, Daniel Serviso. It was never translated into... Um, into Spanish or into English. I wanted to translate it into English, and certainly there were no takers. But uh, it's as, it's the only book dedicated to the Isle of Collares, 1977, everything that happened uh, at that place. It's called Vampiros in Amazonia, Vampires in the Amazon. An unfortunate title, but um, very good information. I don't know. You think with a title like that, it would sell well in the English-speaking world. <laughs> One would think, but uh, okay. there, there were no takers. <laughs> Too bad, man. Too bad. It's a shame. Many of the good books of Latin American ufology remain unknown. And in fact, it was the fact that Salvador Freixedo's monumental works weren't available in English, in English that made me want to take an active part in the UFO field and make them widely available. Uh, only one of them was ever published. They're all translated. We're still looking for a publisher. But here you have this major thinker along the lines of Gordon Crichton and John Keel, who doesn't have a voice in, in the English language. I mean, he's just, he has not been able to make the breakthrough. Well, and this is the, the message that we send to so many of our listeners, is that, look, if you think everything that has transpired in the realm of the paranormal, and specifically UFOs, if you think that every everything is known to us in the English-speaking world, not only is it not, but like what I've been through with my 1974 sighting, there's so much stuff that is essentially completely unknown, even in the countries where these things happened. I mean, this guy, uh, Escalante, had said to me, you know, the one you put me in touch with, that he'd heard some rumors about something like this, but really didn't know whether or not they were true. And, and now with my information, an American who hasn't been to Venezuela since I left in 1979, I mean... You know, here I've given him a lead that he can now follow to, to look into this. It makes you wonder how much activity, certainly UFO activity, has occurred that is not known anywhere. If we extrapolate based on the accounts that are reported, and we figure that that is some percentage of all the accounts and that there are a large number of people who don't talk about or report to anybody what they've seen out of fear of ridicule or fear of their, their job security or any of the above. I mean, if you if you factor all those numbers together, what you end up with certainly, and especially in South America, is just an almost unbelievable level of activity. And and there's there are clues in that. This is what we have to dig for. Where are these clues, and what do these clues tell us? We're just about out of time, Scott. Would you tell our listeners where they can find out more about your stuff and your ongoing research? Absolutely. That would be inexplicata.blogspot.com, where they'll find the latest information on UFO and paranormal activity in Latin America and Spain. And by the way, we have it linked by thepowercast.com, so you don't have to remember how to spell that word. <laughs> okay. You have any books out that we might want to read in our next uh, trip to Amazon, maybe order? Uh, Chupacabras and Other Mysteries, published in 1997, available on Amazon.com. Flashpoint, High Strangeness in Puerto Rico, published in 1998. That was available at Amazon.com.uk. Should still be available. Ah, working on anything now? Uh, I think an explicata keeps me busy enough to, <laughs> to do any writing. Mm. I assume this is generating a lot of interest or a lot of 
additional documentation on some of the things you're investigating? Uh, to a certain extent, yes. It's always been useful to supplement the articles that I do write with some of the newer cases. Usually, I tend to concentrate on the older material. As David observed earlier, we don't have any kind of collective memory. Many times, uh, we reinvent the wheel. So it's good to, to let the younger generation be advised of what was done in the past. And certainly, a lot of the cases, a lot of the opinions of researchers have to be brought forward. And that's what I tend to do in my work regarding Latin America, at any rate. We certainly enjoyed your return visit. And the referral that you gave to David may help him get some critical information about his particular uh, thing, David, it's a pleasure. Count on me anytime. Thank you, sir. We so very much appreciate what you do, Scott. Really, you're uh, you're one of our heroes. So please keep it up. Thank you so much. Keep it up, sir. Thank you for coming on the show. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast. 